We're going to be back in James chapter 4 uh, this morning. We're looking at verses 1 through 10 right now, if you'd like to find your place there. Uh, this passage, James 4, 1 through 10, falls into three main parts, and I'm taking three Lord's Days to look at each of those parts. And I think you'll find that there's a strong connection, actually, between what the, the main message is in the second part of James 1, 1, uh, 4, 1 through 10, that actually connects us very closely with the Lord's table. And I'll make that more explicit a little bit later this morning. I don't think it's a secret to anybody who's here that wherever you find people in the world, you find human sin. Sin is any word or act or thought that goes against God's holy will for his creatures. But why do people want to do or say or dwell on things or look at things or think about things or hear things that are against God's will? More pointedly, why did you and I do things this week that were in direct contradiction to God's will? The simple answer the scripture gives us is not very flattering. It's simply because we wanted to do that. We desired it. There was something we wanted to enjoy, something we wanted to have that was outside of God's will. We see this in the first human sin in Genesis 3, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that was a delight to the eyes and it was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. James has already instructed us on this point way back in James chapter 1, verse 14. It's really not way back. It's just way back in time because we uh, went through this, I think, back in the spring or the winter. He says in James 1, 1, uh, 1, 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. You see, our problem is not just a sin problem. Our problem is first and foremost a love problem. That is the reason that one of the most foundational truths of all of Scripture is the command, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Deuteronomy 6.5. Your path in life will be determined by your greatest object of devotion. You may know what the Bible says about how you should live and how you should think and what you should say, but how you actually live will be a matter of your love, your devotion. And this observation is at the heart of James 4, 1 through 10. That's why I've chosen to summarize the truth of this section with the charge, devote yourself to God submissively. The submissively part will be much, make much more sense after next week. Devote yourself to God submissively, but I think you'll begin to see it even today. Because James shows us what a deviant devotion looks like, a devotion that is wanted from the path of God's will morally, a devotion that is strayed from making God its highest love. And then he shows us in verses 6 through 10 or 7 through 10, how to walk back from this deviant devotion, how to get back on the right path. In verses 1 through 3, if I can do a, a quick review of last week, James shows us the problem of a deviant devotion. James says, what causes quarrels and causes fights 
among you. Now, he's talking about quarrels and fights because remember, he's in a bigger context, which we began in chapter 2. And I'm not going to take the time to go back there this morning. But he asks this question, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? He's writing to believers who are scattered into various house churches across the empire. And he's saying, what causes you to fight in your local assembly and your community of believers? What causes these struggles? And then he answers the question. He says, is it not this that your passions are at war within you? That is in you personally, in your heart and mind. And he shows us what this looks like. He says, you desire and you don't have, so you murder. We saw last week, he's, he's speaking likely metaphorically here, or else he'd probably be saying a few other things about the fact that they killed one another. But he's, he's talking about how bad it is that they're, they're fighting like this. You desire and do not have, and so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Can you imagine a church where all this is going on? I read this week about a big church fight that happened in Jonesboro, Arkansas in the 1930s. Jonesboro, Arkansas. This traveling, traveling evangelist came to Jonesboro and he set up this big tent meeting. He got very popular in Jonesboro, Arkansas. It was not Dr. Bob Jones Sr., by the way. Uh, but, but thousands of people, I think he had up to 5,000 people in this tent meeting. And, and the, to- the town was only 5,000 people. So there's a lot of people coming from other directions. They came to hear this evangelist. And he even knew when the rapture was going to come. It was in May of 1932. So he's missed it a little bit. Uh, But uh, that was the kind of thing he was preaching. Well, the pastor of the First Baptist Church of Jonesboro, Arkansas, happened to retire around this time. And half of the congregation of the First Baptist Church wanted this fiery, prophetic evangelist to stay and be the pastor of their church. And this evangelist was obliged to do it. But the other half wanted a more traditional pastor who would just preach the gospel normally. And the fight was on and the whole town was involved. At first, there were fist fights in the streets. Then people began showing up with planks of woods and pitchforks and shotguns. <laughs> it is the South, okay? Uh, and the, the protest, I didn't think it was that funny. And the protests, the protests and the conflict escalated from there. It, it, the, the mayor got involved. The, the chief of police got involved. The city courts got involved. There was a tear gas bomb thrown in among the worshipers during a sermon. Someone burned the evangelist tent down. The governor of Arkansas had to send in the National Guard. And the situation settled down only after this evangelist started his own church. That's the Baptist way, right? Let's just start our own church. Uh, and, and, and he called that Jonesboro Baptist Church. And by the way, First Baptists of Jonesboro and Jonesboro Baptist Church still exist uh, today. They don't have this history on their website for some reason. But, um, <laughs> but the story continues. After this evangelist started Jonesboro Baptist, he went on a preaching tour around the country for about 11 months, telling people when the Lord was going to come back. And when he finally came back, the pastor he had left in charge of the congregation wouldn't give up the church. So the fight broke out again. So they decided to have a worship war. All the people who wanted the evangelist to be pastor sat on one side of the congregation, and they had their own choir And all the people who wanted the interim pastor sat on the other side of the congregation and they had their own choir. I'm not making any of this up. 
Uh, both congregations worshipped at the same time on a Sunday morning, trying to outperform the other to show which group was dominant. Both choirs sang at the same time, and both the, the evangelist and the interim pastor preached on both sides of the congregation at the same time, trying to top one another. Well, after that, there was another fist fight that broke out in the streets that ev- escalated to an actual shootout. One of the men in the congregation was actually killed during this conflict. And I was reading various accounts of this shameful debacle and thinking to myself, didn't James 4 come to mind to any of these preachers or this congregation? Why did these people who profess to know the Lord act in such a way? Well, James tells us the reason in verse 2. It's the same reason for every one of us. When we enter into an unrighteous conflict with another person, including another believer, he says, is it not that your passions are at war within you? We know we're supposed to be kind and compassionate and peace-loving. But we lose our temper or our composure and we act out in a particular way when someone gets in the way of what we truly love. We're pretty nice people, but you let someone touch our God and we will change. A war breaks out between what we want to do and what the Holy Spirit, if we're genuine believers, is is working out in us. Paul says something similar in Galatians 5, right? He says that the Holy Spirit is producing in us love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. But he says in Galatians 5 that the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, like enemies at war, battling for our behavior and our thoughts and our words. And he says they are opposed to each other. The same thing is happening in James chapter 4. And when we give in to the flesh instead of yielding to the spirit, then we are not, in James's words from the end of chapter 3, following the wisdom that's from above. We are following wisdom that he calls in chapter 3, earthly, unspiritual, demonic. How can you tell which wisdom you're following? James says that's easy. Wisdom from above, he says in chapter 3, verse 17, is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Huh, sounds a lot like the fruit of the Spirit. But wisdom from below, earthly, unspiritual, demonic, trends toward the kind of unrest we read about here at the beginning of chapter 4. When you want to fulfill your own desires so strongly, you don't care what relationships you destroy or use or lie to or manipulate to get them. But as we saw last week, the problem with a deviant devotion goes further than, than a relationship or a broken relationship with one another. A deviant devotion is also willing to harm one relationship with God. James says at the end of verse 2, you do not have because you do not ask. He's talking about prayer. It's not likely that you are going to be spending time in earnest prayer for unrighteous desires. But worse than that, James goes on in verse 3 to say, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Now think about this for a minute. Here's a person who is so set on his own desires that he is willing even to try to manipulate God. 
He takes the precious means that God gave believers by which they can draw close to him and they turn it into a play on God to get what they want. And taking something God gave us for his glory that we can devote, uh, uh, our, so we can devote ourselves to him and then using it to exalt ourselves instead, that is the essence of idolatry. It is the height of a deviant devotion. And that leads us directly into this next section that we'll talk about this morning. Not only does this section talk about the problem of a deviant devotion, James goes on to explain the travesty of this deviant devotion. In other words, how bad this really is. It's not just on, on, on a list of random sins. This is a terrible problem. A travesty is something that is absurdly distorted. That's what that word means. James is going to tell us how to come back from a deviant devotion in verses 7 through 10. But before we study that part of the text next week, Lord willing, it needs to hit home to us how terribly perverse it is for our devotion to God to be displaced by a devotion to something or someone else. I think the translation here softens the outrage that James expresses in his writing. James does not say clumsily, you adulterous people. Most translations read something like this in an attempt to communicate the full idea, but that takes the teeth out of it, in my opinion. James actually writes a single accusatory word in the Greek text. He says, adulteresses adulteresses. He's name-calling. Now, why would James use the word to describe the travesty of those who practice a deviant devotion, who replace their devotion to God with a devotion to something else or someone else? Well, remember, James is writing to Jewish believers, right? We've made this point several times. You, you don't understand James unless you understand that it's a completely Jewish letter. And, and writing to Jewish believers who are very familiar with the Old Testament text. And one of the most salient ways that God condemns the idolatry of his people in the Old Testament is to accuse them of spiritual adultery. We don't have the time right now to explore this theme in the Old Testament like we could. But passages like Jeremiah 3, Ezekiel 16, and really the entire prophecy of Hosea, are key locations in the Old Testament where God depicts his people as a bride who swore a covenant to God as her husband, but was afterward an unfaithful wife. Now, there are more than, there's more than one reason why a married woman may commit adultery. A wife may be lured away. She could be seduced into an illicit relationship. In fact, the original sin itself, which I already mentioned this morning, was the result of a seduction, right? Eve was not looking to disobey God. The serpent came to her and deceived her. But that is not the way the Old Testament uh, portrays God's unfaithful people, the nation of Israel. They are not seduced by false idols. Are you ready for this? They're, They're not pictured as being seduced. When God talks about spiritual adultery in the Old Testament, he depicts his people as leaving the God who redeemed them and blessed them. And they go looking 
for other lovers to be devoted to. In other words, they prostitute themselves. And we see this in many passages. In Jeremiah 3, for instance, God is exasperated by the unfaithfulness of his people. And he cries out, you have played the whore with many lovers. And would you return to me, declares the Lord? Lift up your eyes to the bare heights and see, where have you not been ravished? By the wayside you have sat awaiting lovers like an Arab in the wilderness. In other words, like a nomadic people who wait in the wilderness for passing caravans to trade with. That's the idea there. You have polluted the land with your vile whoredom. In Ezekiel 16, the prophet goes even further in describing the unthinkable act of Israel's abandoning her faithfulness to the Lord. It's a really a stunning chapter. It just leaves you with your mouth hanging open to think about what Israel actually did when, they, when, when she committed idolatry. The chapter describes how the children of Israel would have died in infancy if God had not set his love and pity on her when no one else would and nurtured her and took her as his own and cared for her and richly fed her and clothed her and adorned her with silk and gold and jewels till she grew into a stunningly beautiful and regal wife. But after all that in Ezekiel 16, she turns away from the Lord, though he was a husband to her, and uses her beauty that God had given her to attract other lovers. And she uses the very rich things that God had graciously given to her to make herself alluring. But then she becomes the most ludicrous kind of prostitute because she isn't even receiving payment. Instead, she is paying those who come to her. And God acts in the prophecy like he's beside himself with disbelief. Adulterous wife who receives strangers instead of her husband. Men give gifts to all prostitutes, but you, you gave your gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you from every side with your whorings. So you were different from other women in your whorings. No one solicited you to play the whore. You gave payment. Well, no payment was given to you. Can, you. can you comprehend here the sheer depravity of this depth of unfaithfulness? To take the amazing blessings that you are given out of an act of genuine compassion when you did not deserve it by a loving, holy creator who rescued you from death and gave you all of these wonderful things. And yet, you don't even care about it at all. You give away your blessings to others who are unholy and unrighteous just because you want to do it. And this is not merely a wife falling into adultery. This is a wife who turns on a husband who has poured his life and love into her, spitting in his face. And we are rightly moved to anger when we read this passage and we shake our heads trying to wrap our mind around how hideous, how appalling this blatant, ungrateful act of infidelity. So now you might have a better idea of how it would have sounded in the ears of those who, had orig- who originally read James' letter, how it would have impacted them emotionally when he says to them, 
adulteresses. That would have captured their attention. They knew what was behind that word, that accusation. You might have a better idea of how piercing and emotionally charged it is. This is the travesty of a deviant devotion. This is what we are doing when we do not love the Lord and desire his glory and his will in our lives above everything else. When in fact, we give that place in our heart to someone or something else instead. We are committing a gross and distorted act of unfaithfulness. And James is not pulling any punches here. And now we're in a sense, in a position to understand the rest of the text. So let's continue in verse four. He says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now now keep this idea of of the adulteress in your mind. That's the context here that we have to read that section is in the the rest of verse, uh, uh, here we are. There we go. Yeah, the rest, of, the rest of verse four. We have to understand that this idea of friendship and enmity in the context of spiritual adultery may not be the way we think of friendship and enmity. He's not just talking about casual friendship. When, when he says a friend of the world, he's not talking about like Facebook friends, okay? Or uh, acquaintances. In, in the culture where friendships meant much more than they do today commonly. To be a friend of the world is to align yourself with the world, to commit yourself to the world, to be devoted to the world. We live in a very individualistic society. We're very careful about who gets in our life space. We devote ourselves to very few people. We don't have a lot of friends, but friendship meant this kind of devotion back in the first century. Not simply the people of the world. Do we does it say we devote ourselves? He, he says we're not devoting ourselves just to the simple people of the world. He says we're devoting ourselves to the sinful desires of the world when we become a friend of the world. And these sinful desires of the world are the antithesis of the holiness and righteousness of God. So when you want something that is not in the will of God and you set your heart on that, you become devoted to it rather than God, making yourself the enemy of God or the person you stand against. Now, you may be reasoning in your mind. It's true. I have other desires for pleasure or prestige or popularity or possessions or power. There's a root always at what we want. And it would be really good for us to identify the roots. And we can say, yes, I have these other loves. I have these other urges and I do pursue them, but I still love God. He, he might not be the, the heart and soul of my love. He might not be at the top, but, but, but I'm, I'm cool with him. You are lying to yourself. This is not what the scripture says. You cannot be devoted to God and love what God hates or love what robs us of our complete devotion to God. Jesus put it very simply in Matthew 6, 24, right? He said, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. To serve in this context is to love and to be devoted to. And by first simple force of logic, you cannot love and be devoted to two opposing wills at the same time. 
You cannot serve God and money. Most of you know that in the original word, uh, the original language, the word money here is not actually the word money. It's the word mammon. It's actually an Aramaic word. And that can refer to anything of value that we desire. Money, riches, possessions. You have to decide where your highest devotion lies. Yesterday, many of us were able to gather for a wedding reception for Sean and Raquel, who were married several weeks ago and are now making their first home together. We had a wonderful time uh, yesterday. And uh, we were able to congratulate Sean and Raquel again and celebrate their new life together. There's a, there was a table in the room that said great pictures on that table of their wedding day. And I hope that if you were there yesterday, you got to stop and look at those pictures. But can you imagine for a minute Sean and Raquel setting up their new home and uh, Sean unpacking those pictures and displaying them on a shelf, but then alongside of those pictures, placing a picture of an old girlfriend he used to date years ago. Now forgive me, by the way, for what I'm about to say. Um, so I didn't ask his permission. Um, what do you think Raquel is going to say about that? Who's that? Oh, it's just an old girlfriend I used to date. Is this your idea of a joke? <laughs> because if it is, it's not funny. And Sean might say, relax. It's not like I have feelings for her anymore. She's just a good friend. We just text every once in a while. <laughs> okay, now I'm going to stop right there. Uh, does anyone already think that Raquel should stand for this even for a moment? No, right, exactly. Good, we can all say it together. That she doesn't have the right to feel betrayed? To think that this is a violation of Sean's covenant commitment to her to be faithful to her alone as long as they both shall live? Of course. We're all with them on this. But brothers and sisters, that is exactly what we do when we flirt with the world. When we pursue sinful things or even just earthly things that we give all of our heart to and we don't give our full devotion to God. We think of the pursuit of our desires way too lightly. We don't consider what this means to God. But this is exactly what James is saying. And we know this is what he's saying because look at the very next verse. He says in verse 6, do you, or do you suppose it is to no purpose, I should say verse 5, sorry. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that the, he has made to dwell in us? Now I have to tell you, this is one of the most tricky verses to interpret from the Greek text in all of the New Testament. Literally, it really is. You ask me about that afterwards, I'll show you. Um, but verse 5 uh, here is where James is quoting something it seems from the old testament he's he's not really quoting a single verse he's making sense out of a principle in the old testament and applying it to the believer so what is the principle well the greek text literally looks something like this with envy he yearns or yearns over you could read it either way the spirit, and that could be the, the spirit, the human spirit, or it could be the Holy Spirit. They're spelled exactly the same. There's no capitalization or anything like that. That he made to dwell in us. 
If you look at, say, literally 20, I think I looked at more than 20 different translations of uh, the New Testament in English this week, and they're pretty much divided into four camps of what this actually says. You can read it so that the spirit is the human spirit committing sinful envy. So the King James Version, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy. This makes sense in the context of James 4, 1 through 3, where all the fighting is going on. So you can see why this would be a a good translation. But you can also take the word spirit to refer to the Holy Spirit who is envious or jealous over us. So the new King James says the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, that is jealously for us. Our devotion to something other than God makes the Holy Spirit jealous. We could also read it so that God is the one who is jealous for the Holy Spirit, who he gave to us, though we are giving our heart to another. And that's why the NASB says, he, that is God, jealously desires the Spirit whom he has made to dwell in us. Or we can read it that God himself is jealous over our own deviant spirit spirit, because we have given our heart away. The NIV reads, he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us. Uh, The New Living Translation, which is more of a uh, paraphrase than than a version, uh, says God is passionate that the spirit he has placed within us should be faithful to him. That's not a, a great translation, but I think it's a good interpretation of what's going on here. And this is the reading the ESV follows. Well, how do we know which interpretation to follow? If you look at all four together, numbers two through four is one, in in one way or another, all say the same thing. God the Father, or maybe God the Holy Spirit, yearns for us jealously because we have given away our devotion. James is referring to the fact that the scripture tells us God is a jealous God. Exodus 2, 5, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Exodus 34, 14, you shall worship no other God for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. You shall worship no other God for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. In other words, God is jealous for our affection when we give it to something or someone else. But we are not to think that this jealousy is simply God pouting over our affections. Nothing could be further from the truth. God's jealousy is motivated by his own glory. When we take from him what rightly belongs to him since the day we gave our heart to him, Because God loves us and redeemed us and has enriched us beyond measure, it is an unrighteous travesty for us to do anything else but cling to him in full devotion. We may take our flirting with things of the world or our casual friendship with the world as a light thing. God doesn't take it that way. In fact, he takes it very seriously. And he isn't having any of it. He has every right, like a marriage partner, to be morally outraged at our infidelity. This puts us in a very awkward position 
because we know how easily our hearts wander away from pure devotion to God. That's why we have a, a prayer of confession and a reminder of what God has done to rescue us in Christ every time we come to worship. Because we have, we have high ideals, we have weak wills. How easily we give our heart away to something else or someone else besides God. We set our hearts on activities that he is not a part of in any way. We crave certain pleasures that are either sinful or they eat away our time and energy so we have nothing left for him. We crave prestige or recognition or we just want to take control of our own lives and be respected or admired. And these things drive us. We become devoted to them. They become, in essence, our gods. And God's jealousy is awakened when this happens. And this is not a good position for us to be in at all. So how are we going to overcome this drift toward a deviant devotion? How are we going to satisfy the jealousy of God? Not by anything we can do, fallen as we are, not through our own strength. James gives us the answer of hope in verse 6. But he gives more grace. He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, and that is not good. Our deviant devotion awakens the jealousy of God. But in that very moment when God's jealousy is provoked, God himself, gives more grace to us. Isn't that just like the heart of God? Where would we be without the grace of God? In this expression of his grace, God is making it entirely possible for us to devote ourselves completely to him. How do we access this grace, this, this favor that God manifests in strength and desire to follow him with all our heart and not the things that we desire, not our lesser loves. James finds the answer in Proverbs 3.34. He's quoting it here. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The key to the problem of a deviant devotion is not to grit your teeth and try to talk yourself into loving something as hard as you can. The key is to humble yourself before God, to submit to him. This is the meekness of wisdom, chapter 3. Do you understand what he's saying here? If you want to love something, you don't love like you should. The solution is not in the loving. The solution is in the submitting. And this idea of humility becomes the central theme in the last four verses of this passage that by God's grace we will cover next week where James explains how we are to walk back from this deviant devotion. This morning, however, I wonder as we close, are we too familiar with the world? Not the people of the world, but the sin and the pleasures of the world. Or maybe a more probing question is, if you're relationship with God is like a marriage and you are the wife. How devoted are you to your husband? How much time do you spend with him? What other loves do you, ha do you have that would rightly awaken his jealousy?
Paul says that when we gather around the table, which we will do in a few moments, we must do so in a worthy manner. I think it would be fitting for us this morning to spend some moments in prayer before the Lord to prepare our hearts to observe the table. And I'm going to give us a few moments for silent prayer this morning in just a moment. First, this morning, let's confess our lack of devotion to the Lord. Every one of us can do that. Let's ask God to put his loving hand upon an area or areas of our life that we tend to place before him. Second, let's thank God for his grace to love him more as we submit ourselves to him. And then let's thank him for the salvation. Let's thank him for his grace that he has given to us because of the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's bow together.